hear the word of God from the first three chapters of the book of Ezekiel. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what, from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, 
and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other, and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, And I went in bitterness and in anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kibar River. And there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. Happy New Year. It is so good to be with all of you again in sacred assembly to worship our living Savior together. As most of you know already, I was out of the country last week visiting my father. And I'm so thankful for that time. It was uh, thankful for all of you who've been praying for me. Um, as my father is in the process of reaching the end of his life, uh, thank you for the encouraging notes, for the prayers, for the love, uh, for the gifts. I just just wanted to share how much I appreciate and um, all of you guys and being family together during this time. It's meant so much to me. Your notes and your love has meant so much to me. Today we're starting a brand new series in the Book of Ezekiel. But we're going to throw in a bit of Thessalonians 1 and 2 into the mix. So what we're doing is a little bit of Ezekiel, a little bit of Thessalonians 1 and 2, and then back to Ezekiel. You'll see how that goes together later on. But just be excited about it. You'll see how it makes sense as we go through it. But because we're introducing such a heavy book today, and because I just visited my dad, I thought I'd start us off with a few dad jokes just to lighten the mood a little bit. 
I have a few of them on here. You guys tell me which ones work so I know which ones to use for the second service, okay? Yeah. What does a tick and the Eiffel Tower have in common? They're both parasites. Parasites, parasites. No, no, no. Why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? It was too tired. No? <laughs> what did one hat say to the other hat? Stay here, I'm going on ahead. That's my favorite one. <laughs> no? That's a good one. All right, last one. Did you hear about the guy who invented the knock-knock joke? He won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> that was so bad. <sighs> okay. All right, the hat one, is that the best one? No? That's my favorite. All right, that's enough, okay. Guys, let's look into the book of Ezekiel. And in order to start this series well, we're gonna to have to start off with some history. So this is typically Danny's favorite spot, but I went first, so I get to do the history this time. And I want you guys to just get a little bit of the history of what happened right before we, where we're at in the book of Ezekiel. Now, almost 600 years before Christ, Ezekiel lived in what they called declining times. And if you experienced this, you would understand what that means. He lived at the end of the Davidic dynasty, the dynasty that sat in the Jerusalem throne that began with David. He, the last good reforming king that Davidic dynasty had was King Josiah. And that was 640 to 609 BC. He attempted many godly reforms, but he made a foolish alliance at the end of his life and was killed at 609 as a relatively young man. His son, Jehoahaz, took the throne, but he only lasted three months until the regional superpower, which was Egypt, transported him off to Egypt and replaced him with his brother, Jehoiakim, with an M at the end. The reason I say the end is somebody who's named Jehoashin, Kin, Chin, sounds very similar, M, N at the end. Now, there were heavy tax burdens laid on the people under Egyptian rule. Jehoiakim was corrupt. He, was, he had grandiose visions of himself. He reintroduced pagan cults. He was a bad king. Violence abounded in the land. In his fourth year, in 605 BC, the Egyptians, who they owed tribute to, were crushed in battle by the new coming superpower, Babylon. That was a new superpower of the day. Judah then became a tributary to, no longer to the Egyptians, but now to the Babylonians. So the Judah from then on was ruled by the Babylonian Empire. Four years after that, Jehoiakim rebelled in 601 BC. Now the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar sent contingents of his forces to Judah. In 598 in December, he moved his army to besiege the city of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim suddenly died. We don't know why, he just suddenly died. And his 18-year-old son, Jehoashin, or Jehoiakim, that's the one with the end at the end, became to the throne. At the age of 18, he became king. He didn't choose between surrender or fighting against the world superpower of Babylon. He listened to his advisors, and he surrendered in 597. The palace retinue, the, the palace, the queen mother, the leading craftspersons, citizens, men of valor, the, 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 the noble people at the time, including Ezekiel, were then transported 700 miles away to Babylon. Now guys, when we say 700 miles, that seems like a lot even now, but you gotta imagine how much further 
that was back then, right? 700 miles, what is that, like nine hours of driving, 10 hours of driving, something like that, right? Roughly. I can't imagine, but back then, this is no driving, transportation, you're barely walking. 700 miles away, he was exiled from home. So the young king was in prison or under house arrest for 37 years before he was released. But he did not return to Judah. He died in exile. And he was still regarded by the Babylonians as a rightful claim to the throne. But back home in Jerusalem, his uncle, Zedekiah, was installed as a kind of caretaker king. Ezekiel never even refers to him as king at all. Zedekiah was weak and corrupt, while Ezekiel was away with the exiles. Back home, while Ezekiel was away, the prophet of God was Jeremiah. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah are contemporaries. They're writing at the same time, roughly. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is off with the remnant in exile. So Jeremiah was the home prophet, warning against further rebellion, and eventually Judah revolted, and Babylonian retaliation was swift and brutal. In 588 BC, the Babylonian army was sent again to Jerusalem's gates. And after some delay, Jerusalem was destroyed in 587. The temple destroyed, the walls broken down. Zedekiah tried to escape, but he was captured near Jericho. He was taken to the headquarters of the Babylonian army at Riblah. There he was executed. Now, Ezekiel's prophecy, we're told in verse 1, begins in the 30th year. That is the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. Verse 2, we're told the fifth year of King Jehoiakim. So that's in 593 BC. That's when the Babylonians, the exiles are in Babylon, but Jerusalem has not yet fallen. It is not yet destroyed. So this is six years before the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So are you with me so far? Jeremiah was a prophet at home in Jerusalem. The Babylonian Empire came over and took over and they sent out all these people in the exile. And so Ezekiel is a prophet over the, uh, the Israel, Israelites in exile. You with me? Back home, Zedekiah and a quick bunch of planning and plotting were rebelling against Babylon. And that's where we're at. We're here in a river in Babylon, probably making mud huts, looking to settle and farm these exiles. Now, mind you, this was the ruling class, the, the greatest thinkers, the leaders, the noble people of Jerusalem now being sent to live in mud huts in Babylon. And this is where the word of the Lord came upon Ezekiel. Verse 3, it says, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, what is vital in these opening chapters that I want you to see, I don't want you to miss today, is the nature of God's call on Ezekiel's life. If you skim through the Old Testament, you discover that the way God calls people is not always the same. There's Samuel, who's just a boy, hearing God's voice in the night vision, and doesn't even know where it comes from. Some are happy farmers like Amos, when God suddenly intervenes. But there's a peculiar call when God's calling people in declining times. In fact, Jeremiah was living in declining times, had a similar call to Ezekiel. And there's two elements to Ezekiel's call that I want us to look at, I want us to evaluate, and I want to see how it should impact us today. The first element of Ezekiel's call is this. It was a call by God to see God and be humbled. A call by God to see God and be humbled. In Ezekiel 1, 4 through 2, 2, we have this amazing vivid vision given to Ezekiel. And the symbolism here is apocalyptic. It's, it's a kind of symbolism where you don't try to put things together in a linear picture. It's, it's a bunch of mixed metaphors in this image, in this vision given to Ezekiel. 
For example, we'll discover that there were wheels with eyeballs all around the wheels. Now, that's not the way wheels are typically built, if you know that. Most people don't put eyeballs on wheels. But symbolism is significant. It's important to understand that you don't want to draw a whole picture. You don't want to say, well, the wheels, the eyes are on the wheels because this leads to this, leads to this. No, there's mixed metaphors all throughout this image. And you'll see as, as you start diving into these visions, see it makes sense. And we'll go through this as quickly as we can. But in this dust storm, this, this natural picture gradually becomes supernatural in his vision. Obviously, in the desert area, there's naturally a sandstorm. And out of this sandstorm, it says an immense cloud suddenly with flashing lightning, surrounded by a brilliant light. And the center of the fire looked like a glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. And what we're seeing here is the beginning to discover a mobile throne room of God. That is, you have these four living creatures, and above the four living creatures is what you, a vault, is what it says, a vault in the NIV. But you can similar to like a large dome or a curved plate supported by these four living creatures. And above that is the throne. That's God. And it's this picture of a moving throne room. And this becomes a kind of vision of the mobile throne of God. And most Jews at this point were thinking of God, if he manifests himself to his people, he'd be parked back in the temple of Jerusalem. I mean, you got to think about this. These are people who were just exiled from their land. Their kingdom was taken over, and they're pushed out, and their thought process was, we worship God because his presence is in the temple, and the temple is in Jerusalem. Now, all of a sudden, they're in exile, and the guy who's supposed to be their priest, Ezekiel, is getting this vision, and now it's, it's the throne room of God, but what is it? It's mobile. This is huge for them. This is a huge message for them. Right off the bat, they're saying that, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we still worship God in this strange land? Can God still be our God 700 miles away? Is he still God here? Is God still powerful here? Is he still real here? And the answer to those questions is Ezekiel right away is answering the vision. He says, yes, he is still God here. Yes, God is not just in Jerusalem. He is here also. It shows a a mobile or omnipresent mobile throne room of God that's not dependent upon the temple. That's a beautiful image. What a message of hope immediately comes in this prophetic vision given to Ezekiel. That yes, God can still be your God in a strange land. Even when you're conquered, he's still God. He still sits enthroned. Nobody else but God. He's everywhere. Now you have the four living creatures Four wings, four faces, human, lion, ox, and eagle. And you just, at first, I don't, did you guys all try picturing it when, when the scripture was being read, anybody? What image, I mean, some weird images come to mind, right? Wheels with eyes and like four faces. So it's like, I think of like the He-Man figurine. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody? The He-Man figurine that the face would change? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's such a weird image, but what does it mean? And it's hard for us because we don't have the same imagery, the same traditions, the same common language of the ancient Near East. But let me help you guys a little bit with this. There's a few things about it. Number one, the human face. The human face is meant to show the intelligence, the rational thought processes of the throne room of God. Obviously, the belief system that human beings are the highest, most intelligent out of the created order, which some could argue that. Some human beings are not very smart. But that's the idea behind it. 
in the created order, human beings are the most intelligent. It's this idea that the human face shows the intelligence, the rational thought, logic. The lion's face is a symbol of royalty. The king of the jungle, or the king of the animals, the king of the beasts. Although I don't know if lions are in jungles. Are they in jungles? The song says they're in jungles. But are they actually in jungles? Yes, anybody? I don't know. Okay, in my mind I think of savannas or plains, but that could be just me. The ox, the symbol of strength. The Egyptians, for example, had a god whom they pictured as an ox, Apis, because the ox was a symbolized strength. It was the embodiment of, of, of human or uh, potential animal strength. The eagle probably represents compassion or care according to archaeological studies because certain species of eagles in that area had a particular way of teaching their eaglets how to fly. When the mother eagle thought that the eaglets were ready, she would shove them out of the nest. But the father would be down below circling so that there's been a miscalculation that the father would come up underneath the eagle and pick up and catch the eagle that was falling. Which I'd never heard of this, and this is a couple commentaries actually shared this, uh, researchers, so I don't know how accurate they are, but if this is not accurate, yell at those commentators. I just got this from books. But God says in Exodus, you see how I've borne you up on eagles' wings. That's the image that people in the Near East would have understood with eagles. And all these animals are majestic, lion, eagle, ox. But it showed natures of, of what was considered to be pride, something powerful. It showed power, it showed royalty, it showed compassion, it showed intelligence. So God, in this vision, is saying not only that my throne is everywhere, my throne is not limited to the temple. My throne is everywhere. It's able to reach you even in Babylon. He's saying my throne is intelligent, it is royal, it is strong, it is compassionate, it is caring. That's such a powerful image. It's, it's, it's God revealing himself to his people. You might have forgotten, but this is who I am. And it's this big incredible image, I love this, has, has flashes of lightning, it has, it has fire, it has fuel. And this is commonly understood as the Old Testament symbolizing God's terrifying presence. In, the, in our age, before the electricity and the power, nuclear power and all that stuff, the, the idea of a display in the ancient Near East, the most powerful power that they could think of was an electrical lightning storm. This idea, nothing as sheer powerful as that existed in all of nature. And so what do they have represent the sheer power of God is a storm, is lightning, it's sheer power. For example, in Sinai, when God gave the Ten Commandments, we're told there was lightning and thunder and flashes of fire. The storm was so violent that people didn't dare come any closer to the mountain. So here we have here, God's throne is flashing with fire, it's lightning, it's, it's the like, it's, guys, I want you to get this, this is, what they're trying to portray is, is Ezekiel is seeing that the throne of God is here, but it's ridiculously powerful. It's so bigger and so much beyond what anything he can comprehend. He's trying to use words that pales in comparison. He has nothing to say, just like this is, this is ridiculous. The most powerful thing I can think of doesn't even compare to what God's throne is. And he's communicating this. And very intentionally, he talks about how the creatures can only go one direction. Now, why is it so intentional about that? And I love this. It's because God is so clear that these creatures are living creatures. They're embodiment of power and of intelligence and compassion and royalty. But they all follow the rule of God. God is enthroned. And they can only be led where the Holy Spirit leads them. 
And you have this firmament, this vault, it says. You know, this vault being held up. And some people, I had one commentary say it's like a big walk. Is how he, he pictured it. He pictured a big walk, a big bowl plate holding up. And what this picture of is, is a separation of the heavens and the earth, this idea of the firmament found in the book of Genesis. And it's this idea that there's a separateness to God. And he's being held up in the firmaments there, but God is beyond even the firmaments. And we're told that verses 15 through 18, beside each creature, there's a strange wheel. And there's a wheel intersecting a wheel. There's this weird contraption and it doesn't turn. The wheels don't turn at all. They don't get steered. That's just, that it's just, rims are also high and awesome. They're full of eyeballs. Which just idea just creeps me out. I, I found out about this on Facebook somehow. There, there's a condition where you don't like seeing a bunch of dots or holes. Anybody ever heard of that? I don't, I've heard about it somehow. I, like, I saw that on Facebook. Like, if you get like, grossed out or like, shivered when you see like, a bunch of holes, like, I saw a picture of like, pomegranates or something. I was like, Ugh. Anybody heard about that before? I don't know why I just thought about that, but I just thought about that. <laughs> That's me. I, saw, I see that and I'm like, Ugh, I get grossed out by it. And I, I, for some reason, I think of this, I, I picture this wheel with all these eyeballs I get grossed out by. It. That's not the picture you're supposed to have, but that's what happened to me. What these eyes are is symbolic, it's very symbolic in a lot of apocalyptic literature of the time. It's a symbol of omniscience. It's the idea that God is all seeing. It's like, it's like Odin with his ravens. It's the idea that God sees everything. He's all knowledgeable, he's all knowing. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. So God's throne room is mobile, but it only moves, it doesn't steer by itself, it only moves by the will of the Spirit, of the will of the Lord, only by the Spirit of the Lord. It's intelligent, it's compassionate, it's royal. It's beyond powerful, it's the most powerful source of power that you can think of. And it knows and sees all. There's this idea that this, these, this contraption, this platform is, is just beyond anything else. It says the platform glows awesomely like ice. And in verses 23 to 24, under the expanse of the wings were stretched out one toward another, supporting the whole expanse. Then when the creatures moved, we're told again, I heard the sound of their wings. Because of each creature, there were four wings, two stretching out to hold this thing up and two actually to move. And the sound was like, of the wings were like the roar of rushing water, like the voice of the Almighty. This idea here is that the sound is pervasive, is omnipresent. Guys, have you ever been to like a major like rock concert or outdoor venue where the speakers are right there and you've been you're close to your speakers before? It's kind of like that idea. I remember putting on a concert when I did youth ministry and I remember being up there where the sound was being set up and as I checked the sound, I remember walking in and all of a sudden my heart went, like it skipped a beat because the sound was so massive. You felt it in your chest. And you couldn't talk, it was all consuming was this sound. That's the idea here, that when this throne room moved, it was all consuming, the sound was everywhere. It's like the voice of the Almighty. And then verse 25, there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And above their expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. So as you get closer to this figure, the more and more elements of the vision are cast in simile or metaphor. This was like something. This was like something else. Or was a figure like that of a man. I saw that what appeared to be his waist up. He looked like glowing metal. 
as if full of fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. The point is this, it's like if you have a child and you give a set of crayons to like a child and you say, draw me a rainbow. And they make this beautiful rainbow. It's very clear colors. You know, there's like the red, the orange and all that color. They're all very clear. It's all there. But when you look at nature and you see a real rainbow, it's never that clear and precise. It gets fuzzy towards the edges. It, there's a, you can, it's hard to focus your attention. You can see kind of a spectral change from the color to color, but it's not clear. It's not like clearly defined when the kid draws. It's, it's, like, uh, it's not focused. It's like it's on a rainy day. And it's this idea that kids, when they draw, that this is their image. They, they try to give an image compared to something, but it's, it's fuzzy because it's not so clear because it's, it's so much more glorious than what their abilities to draw are. When we're told this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, you can't draw a picture of that. Despite all the descriptions, despite the, the beauty of the symbols, it's just not picturable. You can't go home and draw a picture and say, this is my God, and put it on your bulletin board. It's so bigger, it's so beyond. It says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking to me, stand at your feet, son of man, and I will speak to you. You see, the first element of Ezekiel's call was that he was a call to see God and to be humbled. This whole vision shouts out the glory of God. Look at his majesty, understand his glory. Now the imagery was made for someone in the ancient Near East, so a lot of that is missed by us. A lot of us don't understand the imagery of an ox, because how many of you actually have used an ox to plow a field before? Probably not many of you, right? But for them, they would understand. For us, maybe the imagery would be totally different. If God decided to give you this image of him now, it might look totally different. But in the ancient Near East, that's what the symbol was. It was power, it was royalty, it was majesty. Everything glorious, everything majestic, everything big. But don't miss the importance of this message. Is that he is glorious. Is that God is so big, he's so transcendent, he's so much more majestic, more incredible, more awesome than you could ever imagine. There is no, not enough descriptive words to describe who and what God is. There's not enough images, there's not enough comparisons, there's not enough to say God is so big, so incredible, and so mighty. That's the point. And we need to see this and be in awe of God. Please hear me well, my people. I think we run to the temptation or the easy cycle of losing our awe. Allow me to be transparent for a moment here. Um, I find it incredibly challenging for me to live in this world with a deep sense of awe for God. I'm gonna be honest about that. Because there are things all around me that clamor for my affections, for my worship and my awe. I can often control most elements of my life. I can often accomplish good results through effort and hard work. Science can explain away most elements of life. And most days I can forget or ignore God. That's the truth for me. I'm being transparent. And what a sad state that is. 
to lose your awe of who God is. Albert Einstein says this, not necessarily talking about God here. He says, he who can no longer pause to wonder and step wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. Albie got it right here. It's called Albert Einstein Albie. But um, if we start losing our ability to truly see and understand and be in awe of who God is, then we're blind and we're dying. Paul Tripp says this, when awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. When awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. I mean, do you get it? We must never lose our awe of God, his holiness, his glory, his majesty, his goodness, his love, his passion, his righteousness. He is worthy of our awe and worship. And this passage of Ezekiel is screaming that out us today. And we need it, guys. We need God to be awesome. We need a creator God that is beyond us. Because if there isn't, then we have only ourselves to worship and depend on. And can I tell you, that is not enough for me. If who I am or what humans can do is the extent of all in this world, then we are so to be pitied because I've seen the result of what men can do. I need a God who is beyond us, who is worthy of all, that can truly state and be what true beauty is, what true love is, what true justice is, so that I can base a, an ideal on something that's beyond me. Does that make sense? I need a God that's worthy of all. Because if there's not a God worthy of all, then I'm the one that I should be in awe of. And if I'm the one that should be in awe of, or humans are what we should be in awe of, then man, that is sad to me. My people, he's worthy of all. And we need to stop and look and realize how majestic and powerful and glorious and transcendent and incredible and giving and caring and compassionate our God really is. That with the word he spoke existence. And by his very nature, he holds the world together. That every law of nature, every law of creation exists because he wills it to be so. That we don't understand only what beauty is because he is beautiful. And we can know what justice and love is because he is just and loving. We need to be in awe of God. And can I tell you, what Paul Tripp says is so true, is when we stop being in awe of God, we start becoming in awe of ourselves. And it's not enough. First call to Ezekiel is to be in awe of God, to stop and see how big God is, how incredible God is, to never lose the picture of the glory and the goodness of God. My people to you, this year, as I call you, as we, as we challenge each other to grow together in Christ, can you just stop and see how big God is? My son Hudson is lately, he's scared of the weirdest things. I don't know why. Like, he loves sharks and snakes, you know? Which I would be like, those are some of the scarier things out there. But he thinks they're so cool and he loves them. But then we saw Homeward Bound. Anybody remember that movie, Homeward Bound? That's a good, cute little movie, right? He was scared of the mountain lion. 
on Homeward Bound. I'm like, you're not scared of Shakespeare, but that little line, he's like, I don't know, he's my, my son. And so we, we, we go to bed, and I'm like, Hudson's like, but I'm scared. And I said, well, you wanna pray about it? He says the sweetest prayer. He says, dear God, please help me not be scared and give me good dreams. I'm like, oh, such a sweet little prayer. So I remind him, I said, Hudson, can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah, yeah, dad. He said, I said, do you think God is, is bigger than a shark? And he says, oh yeah, God's bigger than a shark. Then he goes, but is he bigger than a megalodon? And I said, yes, he's bigger than a megalodon. I said, do you think, do you think God can handle a mountain lion? And Hudson says, oh yeah, oh yeah. God's much stronger than a mountain lion. So I said, do you think God can handle even bad dreams? I always said, oh, yeah, yeah, God's stronger than bad dreams. And I said, okay, then, do you think he's going to be with you when you go to bed tonight? He says, yes. <laughs> but I feel like he's more with me when I'm in your room. But <laughs> Can I tell you, I know that sounds silly, and I know as, as a little kid that's reassuring, God's bigger. Can I tell you that we need that too, don't we? Is God bigger than cancer? Yeah, he is. Is God bigger than even the worst things that happen in life? Hurt and loss and abuse, anxiety and fear. Yeah, he is. I need him to be. When we lose our awe of God, that he's not bigger than those things. But when we stand in awe, See for what he really is, and yes, he's bigger. Yes, he's stronger than all those things. And we need him to be. Why put your soul as your off, God? There's so much mystery. There's so much glory to see in him. Don't think you know all the answers. You don't have to. God is glorious. Amen. May that bring you to your face. May that make you fall and be humbled by him. Two, the second element of Ezekiel's call was that Ezekiel received the call to speak God's word and to be fearless. Two elements of his call is one, he saw the glory of God and it humbled him. And the second element was he received the call to speak God's word and be fearless. God said to Ezekiel, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites. So a rebellious nation has rebelled against me. The whole decline of the Davidic dynasty, the nation was bound up with this loss of obedience and faithfulness to God. So God said to him, they and their fathers have been revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn, saying to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been amongst them. God is speaking to Israel and Ezekiel is saying, hey, I'm calling you to do a word. I'm calling you to speak out. Speak to the people. And whether they listen or not, that's not on you. But I'm calling you to listen, to speak, and to share. Now, get to, I want you to get the emphasis on, what, on getting God's word right. It says here that you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Ezekiel is being called to speak the words of God in truth and getting it right, but not caring what the results are. Not necessarily not, not caring, but leaving the results up to God. He needs to speak God's word to his people whether they are not to listen. He needs to give warning, even though it might cost them and even though he may be afraid. 
Guys, it is crucial in a fallen world to speak God's words because especially so in a declining time for two reasons. First, because it demands more courage. Second, because this is also the means by which God does his work. I want you to understand this, that God has chosen to do his work through the speaking of his word. And whether that means that they turn to repentance or that means it leads to God's judgment, it's still God's work that he does. My people, I want you to hear this. I'm trying to kind of rush through this here. It is essential that you are in awe of God and that in this all be faithful to speak and to teach his word. Now hear me very well. What I'm not saying, that means that everybody needs to get up and give a sermon on Sunday morning. I am not saying that every single person has to share the gospel at least seven times a day and has to do this, like share it with 50 other people, or there's a tally that God's keeping track of how many times you, you, said, you shared God's word. Do you hear me? This is not a legal requirement that's like God to earn God's love that you better talk about God. You guys hear me on that? Here's what I am saying. Is that all of God leads to one desiring to do the will of God. And the will of God is for every one of us to be diplomats of his kingdom and help his kingdom advance. We are led by his spirit to speak this truth to the ones he calls us to. Guys, remember that the mobile throne room wouldn't go any other direction except where the spirit of the Lord led it to go. You are responsible for where the spirit is leading you, not where leading everybody else. So be faithful to share to where the Spirit is calling you. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? But I also add a t- I want to add a touch more to this. I know there are some of us who love this idea of being like a prophet, who kind of wants to speak out in condemnation and call out this culture. And can I tell you, there's a lot. I get the temptation. There's a lot that we want to speak out against. There's a lot that I want to yell and rail against. There's a lot that I want to get angry about. There's a lot I want to speak out against. There's a lot that I want to criticize. There's a lot of stones I want to throw. And there's a lot of things that deserve it. Do you hear me? But I just want to say this one quote that I saw on Facebook the other day. It's hard to throw stones while washing feet. Let me say that again. It's hard to throw stones while washing feet. Facebook sometimes has some good stuff. What it means, guys, is that as we're doing the call of Jesus to wash feet, to humbly love and serve, that means we can empathize well with people. That means we're loving them well and serving them well. And it's really hard to throw stones. It's really hard to condemn. That's what we're called to be. Don't get me wrong, there are times when we're supposed to speak out. Speak out and condemn what needs to be condemned and spoken out against. But those are more rare and few. I think the majority of the time we're called to wash feet. Does that make sense? And when we speak, hear me very well, when we speak of the posture of one who is washing feet, that's received differently, isn't it? When we speak as one who's washing somebody else's feet and when we share, that's received differently than someone who is casting stones and then sharing. Does that make sense? Guys, can we look different? What would it be like if we were the people who, who live in awe constantly? 
All the ones who see the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the, the incredible righteousness of God, and we are in awe. We are just so moved by it that the love of Jesus on the cross moves us. The grace moves us. We're in awe of it all the time, and then we speak out of the positions and the posture of those who are washing feet. What would that do? What would that look like? How incredible would that be? And guys, that's not something different. This is the message of the Bible. This is in Ezekiel, just as much as it is in the New Testament. This is what we're called to. Can we live in awe of God? Can we see his majesty, understand his grace and goodness, be in awe, fall on our faces, and while on our faces in awe of God, wash the feet of the people around us? And while we're doing that, speak truth and love to them. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Christ. The call upon Ezekiel is, is to see, be in awe of God, see God be in awe of him and be humbled by it, and then speak his truth in love. May that be us. At one point, we've started this idea of how do we love the triangle well? How do we love the nations well? And we said the way we love them well is by, the idea is by praying for, serving, and sharing. Those of us who've been, who've seen are in awe of God. May we pray for, and may we serve, and may we share with the people around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your mighty love for us. God, we thank you that your throne room is powerful, God, is majestic, God, that it's royal, it's compassionate, it's intelligent. God, it's strong. And we are in awe of you, God. We're in awe that this powerful, all-creator God who spoke the universe into existence and holds it up by his will and by his hand still said, I love you enough that I will, you will know me, and he came upon the cross to die for us. We're in awe of your goodness. Now may we share that goodness with the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The idea of a reset, of a, a fresh start in a new year. And I think sometimes we can approach the table like that, uh, like maybe this is a refresh, a restart in my relationship. But I want to maybe think about it a little differently as we come. Erica led us earlier in the service in a prayer of confession. And when we see God, as Lawrence pointed us to, when we see his glory and stand in awe of him, I think of when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 saw the Lord, his response was, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
And then there in Isaiah it says, then one of the seraphs, one of these creatures, flew over and took a live coal from the altar. And with it he touched my lips and he said, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And this is the message of the gospel that we see even in the Old Testament through these prophets that sometimes feel a little um, mysterious is the message that there is grace and forgiveness in the midst of our unworthiness. And that's the message of the cross. And as we come this morning, I want to invite you to think about this not as a reset, but as a recentering. As an opportunity that we as a body get to come back and hear the words of, of the gospel. See, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And as we come to the table, we remember that this is a feast for the forgiven. This isn't this magical moment to get a restart it's a recentering and a returning to what is true of you if you are in Christ. I want to invite our uh, servers to come forward in the band. Um, if the band will come up. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you come this morning, this is an invitation for those who have put their faith in Jesus to come and recenter yourself. To remember that your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And in the midst of a holy, great, awesome God, we have confidence to come. So in a moment, I invite you to come to one of these stations. You can come to the middle aisle. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to don't feel awkward to just stay in your seat and sit and reflect. But this is a feast for the forgiven, an opportunity to recenter and remember. Father, we thank you for your body that was broken, for your blood that was poured out. We give you thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I invite you to come.